Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for what we celebrate today, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of you into Jerusalem in all humility for a purpose and a mission to bring salvation to humanity. Lord, we thank you that while it was a struggle sometimes, you kept, you kept through it. And you knew that it was still the Father's will for you, even though you wrestled with it in the garden, sweating drops of blood. And we're so grateful that you followed through with all of it. Because without all of it, we would have no hope. We would have no salvation. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for making us your children. We thank you for your word. That even as it seems like more and more people every day just toss it out the window, thinking it's no longer relevant to modern thinking, we thank you that it will always remain timeless. It will always remain true. It will always remain relevant. It will always be our source of strength. So Lord, we come before you. We come before your word this morning to see what you have for us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few months ago, uh, Reader's Digest published an article entitled 12 Detective Riddles That Only the Smartest People Can Solve. So we won't do all 12 of them. I won't do that to you. But let's test this to see if we match up with what the title says. See if we are the smartest people here, okay? You might think, man, I did not drink enough coffee for this this morning. All right, here's the first one. A Japanese ship was leaving the port and on its way to open sea. The captain went to go oil some parts of the ship and took his ring off so it wouldn't get damaged. He left it on the table next to his bunk. When he returned, it was missing. He had suspected three crew members could be guilty and asked them what they had been doing for the 10 minutes that he had been gone. The cook said, I was in the kitchen preparing tonight's dinner. The engineer said, I was working in the engine room making sure everything was running smoothly. The sailor said, I was on the mast correcting the flag because someone had attached it upside down by mistake. The captain immediately knew who was the culprit. How and who was it? All right, well, I won't draw this out any longer. It was the sailor. Japanese flag looks like this. There is no upside down to it, is there? <laughs> the next one is a murder mystery. On the first day of school, someone murdered a history teacher. Not saying anything about history here. Uh, there were four people at the school that the police suspected had done it. The landscaper, the math teacher, a basketball coach, and the principal. These were their alibis. The landscaper said he was outside mowing the lawn. The math teacher said he was giving a mid-year test. The basketball coach said he was running practice drills with his players. The principal said she was in her office. After giving their alibis, the police arrested the killer immediately. Who killed the history teacher and how did the police know? No. It was a math teacher. Why? Well, do you remember what I said at the very beginning of this riddle? Which day of school was it? First day of school, and the math teacher said he was giving the mid-year test. 
All right, All right. I'm done picking on you. In each of these riddles, there was certain evidence that point blank alerted the authorities as to who the culprit was. And while we're not talking about a culprit this morning, Jesus gives clear-cut evidence as to why and how he's the Son of God and the Messiah. And we'll also find out what this means for us today. What we're talking about this morning is once again a continuation of Jesus' conversation with the confrontational Pharisees. Jesus has warned them that if they continue to base their entire belief system on how well they follow their own made-up rules and the Mosaic law, and therefore their own perceived self-righteousness, he, as the Son of God, would judge them for it. The only foundation for where Jesus as judge would send them, as well as us, and every human that has ever lived, is whether or not, as John 5.24 says, we have accepted Jesus and his claims. So far in the Gospel of John, these claims have been that he is the Son of God, and as such will be the judge of all humanity. It all starts with recognizing and taking for yourself the truth that Jesus is God. As God, he is sinless, and therefore any kind of possibility of being a sinless and perfect sacrifice for our sin. If we also take Jesus' death and resurrection as that perfect sacrifice for our sin, as a substitute on our behalf, and therefore repent of that sin, and make Jesus as God the King over the rest of our lives, Jesus says in John 5.24 that they have eternal life, and, does, and they do not come into judgment, but have passed out of death into life. We talked last week about how the one who died and rose again for us will also be our judge. And the basis for our eternal fate is really very simple. We as humans like to complicate everything, but it's, ve it's really very simple. Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior from your sin and made him the king over your life? Or do you think you're good enough on your own and constantly reject Jesus as this? It's really very simple. That's the, that's the only choice. If you did accept him, you are saved from the judgment of condemnation and banishment to hell. If you never did, you will be condemned to a place of eternal physical and emotional torment. That's what brings us to this morning's passage. This authority as judge of the Pharisees specifically and all of humanity generally does not come from Jesus himself. He says that firstly in this morning's passage. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be picking back up in verse 31. Uh, it's in the New Testament. Uh, you can ask a neighbor if you're having trouble finding it, or you can look this up on your Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 5, verse 31, and we read this. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Well, that's common sense. As was noted by one biblical scholar, if Jesus did act like he was the source of his own authority, he would be seen as self-exalting and pompous, and most importantly, non-credible. 
In the Jewish legal court system, a person could be cleared of a crime and their credibility remain intact or condemned of a crime and their credibility destroyed simply on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And who is Jesus talking to? Ones who well know about this, the Pharisees, experts, at least in their minds anyway, in the Jewish law. In the human way of thinking, they had every right to counteract Jesus at this point and declare, and who in the world do you think you are to have this authority over us and over the rest of humankind? We know that Jesus knew what was in humans' hearts, so he immediately flows into the foundation for his authority to cut off any rebuttal at the pass. As God, he didn't need to do this, but Jesus next points out not two, not three, but goes above and beyond and points out four witnesses to his deity and therefore to authority to judge humanity. We'll divide these witnesses in half and talk about the first two witnesses this week. As we looked at the past couple of weeks, uh, Jesus has already mentioned that God the Father is the one who has given him this authority. Jesus alludes to and reiterates that in verse 33, uh, 32. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. As the one calling the shots, God the Father is the one who already lined up these witnesses. God the Father is the one who gives the Son the authority, and as such is the one who gives the credible testimony to prove that authority. The first witness is one we've already discussed when we covered John chapter 1. We find that in verse 33. You have sent to John, and he's talking about John the Baptist here, and he has testified to the truth. John the Baptist, if you remember, I know it was a long time ago at this point, to John chapter 1. John the Baptist was the transitional figure from the Old Testament prophets to everything being fulfilled in Jesus. Prophet, priest, and king. In fact, John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet as anyone understood it. As a prophet, his purpose was to say what God wanted him to say. And what God the Father wanted him to say was to be a testimony pointing to Jesus' deity and authority. And that's exactly what John did. The Pharisees and the general Jewish populace of the area already well knew who John was and what he had been talking about. I'm using the past tense because as you line the events up in harmonizing the four Gospels, John the Baptist at this point by John chapter 5 has already been arrested and his ministry has been over for a little while. But before, while John the Baptist was still preaching and baptizing people in the Jordan River, Jesus notes that the Pharisees sent messengers to find out what John was doing. We have that interaction recorded in John 1, 22 through 23. We read, the messengers say to John the Baptist, they say, then who are you? We need an answer for those who sent us, the Pharisees. What do you have to say about yourself? John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. While John is quoting Isaiah here, 
The passage he quotes is undeniable. In the original context of what he's quoting, this verse that John is quoting here is among the first verses that declare hope and restoration to Israel. The prophecies that follow in Isaiah have both a short-term fulfillment in the Jewish exiles returning to Judah and a long-term fulfillment in the end times messianic kingdom on earth. And it all starts with Isaiah's declaration that God himself was going to be visiting the nation of Israel. For John to connect that declaration in Isaiah to the one he will reveal to the, be the fulfillment of that is huge. This is why. When these messengers sent by the same Pharisees Jesus is now talking with in this morning's passage continue to confront John the Baptist about who he was, John connects the message about God himself coming to baptize in water. John answered saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one, God, whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, of whom I am not even worthy even to untie the strap of his sandal. See, John connects what he has already said about the prophet Isaiah, about God visiting the nation of Israel directly to this one who is not even, he's not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. God, who is going to be revealed, was already there in the crowd somewhere that day. Somewhere around that these pharisaical messengers and the Pharisees themselves did not recognize him. They wouldn't recognize him on their own because of their own spiritual blindness. We can surmise that these messengers return the next day because Jesus references it in this morning's passage. That next day, John finally reveals what he had been building up to all this time. So we have God will be visiting, God himself. That, that, that God being is going to be one who's among them that you don't recognize, but who John the Baptist is not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. And then all that builds up to the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, everything that I've been talking about is in this guy, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I've been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. All of this buildup finally erupts with John pointing point blank at Jesus and say, that's him. Everything I've been building up to, that's the guy right here. John connects everything that would ever need to be connected about who the prophesied Messiah would be. The perfect sacrifice that would take away the sin of not only the Jewish people, but of people from all over the world. The messianic king who would rule over a never-ending kingdom. And from the very first announcement, God coming all, all of that to Jesus who was walking towards him at that moment. And then, 
just to be perfectly clear of everything he's just been saying, John lastly directly connects to Jesus, and I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. This is God himself. John couldn't have been any clearer in his testimony. And as Jesus says in verse 33 in this morning's passage, John's testimony should have been enough to cause the Pharisees, whose messengers saw and heard all of what I just went through from John chapter 1, and brought back to them to want to find out more. In fact, as Jesus points out in verse 33, John himself even declared that it was God the Father who sent him to be a witness to the Son of God. But instead of wanting to find out more, as we read a couple of weeks ago, they sought all the more to kill Jesus. So here in verse 33, Jesus brings all of that back up to them as a very clear reminder. Hey, remember all of that that you already heard and that you already know about, including the fact that John had announced that he was sent by God the Father to be a testimony to who God the Son really was. Why? Verse 34 in our passage this morning. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. See, even John the Baptist's testimony wasn't human in origin. Even John's testimony was a testimony from God the Father who sent him. Jesus didn't need a human testimony to his deity, but there was a clear and powerful reason for why he did. Jesus was not merely pointing out that he had proof he was the Son of God and the Messiah to the Pharisees. He was reiterating everything John had said about him to give the Pharisees an opportunity to recognize him for who he really is and put their faith in him in order to be saved. Wow! Jesus knew these guys were the ones who in a couple more years would be the driving force to his excruciating physical torture, which we remember as beginning late this Thursday night when Jesus was arrested on the night of what many Christians will observe as Maundy Thursday. And yet even knowing that it will be because of these guys, Jesus takes this as an opportunity, not only to legitimize his authority over them, but to give them an opportunity to be saved from his judgment of condemnation, even knowing everything that was going to happen in a couple of years from that point. As noted by one biblical scholar, by the Apostle John, including this testimony, it wasn't only for the benefit of Jesus' original audience, that is, the Pharisees and anyone else gathered around for this ruckus. It was also for those who would be reading John's Gospel. Remember, from the beginning of this series, that John was clear about why he wrote this fourth Gospel. By the point John wrote this Gospel, the church was being persecuted by every angle imaginable. So the Holy Spirit led the last living disciple to write this gospel towards the end of his earthly life, to bolster the faith of the church, to remind them of who they put their faith in, 
in the first place and to lead any others living in the ancient Mediterranean world to also put their faith in Jesus. That's why the Apostle John started his gospel off with John the Baptist in the first place. Yes, he's got the prologue talking about the Word being Jesus and the Word dwelling among us, but the very next thing he, he starts off with after that is John the Baptist. At the, at the point of the Apostle John writing his gospel, John the Baptist was very well known. Everyone scattered across the ancient Mediterranean world had at least heard of John the Baptist. And so the Apostle John opened up his gospel with this prophet in order to connect as many people as possible, no matter what their background, language, or past, or ethnicity, to give them enough information about Jesus for them to put their faith in him for their salvation. And the Apostle John reiterates that in the record of Jesus' words here. Jesus calls the Jewish people as a whole back to their initial excitement at John the Baptist's preaching of the coming Messiah. And the Apostle John calls any of the readers of this book back to any knowledge they had of John the Baptist and what his message was. Verse 35, He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Remember that original excitement you had about John the Baptist and the message he was preaching. Jesus is the light of the world, as the Apostle John already described in John chapter 1. And John the Baptist was the lamp, imitating and reflecting the true light. Jesus was calling the Jewish people back to their initial excitement of listening to John the Baptist, repenting of their sin, and wanting to live their lives for God. You sense the question in these words, in verse 35, what happened? What happened to that excitement? Where did it go? What happened to that expectation of the Messiah's arrival? What happened to repenting and being baptized in order to anticipate the Messiah's arrival? In reality, Jesus already knew the answer to the, all of those questions. What happened was that John the Baptist got thrown into prison, never to emerge again. What happened was that the Pharisees were glad to be rid of John the Baptist, even though they were initially intrigued by him. And what had happened was that the Jewish people had simply forgotten about John the Baptist's message. But even though everybody forgot about that, none of that changed the fact that John the Baptist had been sent by God the Father to be a witness to Jesus' deity and had confirmed that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messianic King, and had the authority as that king to judge everyone's souls. Nothing changed, changed that truth, no matter how many people forgot about it. John the Baptist had confirmed in his testimony that authority when he said that he wasn't even worthy to untie the strap of Jesus' sandal, something a household servant was commissioned to do in Jesus' day. In addition... What else was another sign from God the Father to testify that Jesus was the Son of God, sent by God the Father, and had the authority as such? This is the second witness, verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. 
For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. Yes, John the Baptist was a human prophet sent by God to declare Jesus' deity and authority. But God the Father had given an even greater sign. And that was this. All the miracles that Jesus had already performed and would perform. Who else could completely reverse 40 years of muscular atrophy that the Pharisees had just seen for themselves right before this conversation? Who else could change the complete molecular nature of two hydrogen and one oxygen molecules into the molecular structure of wine? Who else could completely heal a boy on the verge of death with just four words while there was 20 miles of distance between them? And those were just what John had recorded Jesus had done so far. There would be rebuking and demanding that demons would leave different people alone, waging war on the very kingdom of darkness itself. There would be a halting of the laws of nature and gravity when he would walk on the surface of water. There would be healing of all sorts of debilitating physical sicknesses, ailments, conditions, and pain. There would be a certain woman suffering from a bleeding disorder for years, foiling the wisdom of the greatest doctors around who would only need to touch the edge of Jesus' clothing and be completely healed. There would be the multiplication of bread and fish out of thin air, not because Jesus had a couple more hidden up his sleeve, but enough to feed thousands and thousands of people. And at one point, there would even be the restoration of physical life to a man who had been literally dead for four days and was so beyond rescue, his own sisters didn't want to open up his grave for fear the stench of his decaying body would cause everybody around to puke. And yet, that dead man walked out of that grave fully alive at the call of Jesus. We know that some of these Pharisees ended up putting their faith in Jesus. But by and large, most of them refused to put their faith in everything Jesus was telling them. Like we talked about when we first started John 5, this whole conversation Jesus is having with the Pharisees followed Jesus healing the man who hadn't been able to walk for 40 years on the Sabbath. When was that? Right around the second Passover mentioned in John's Gospel and pretty much exactly two years from the Passover on which Jesus would be nailed to a cross. And so two years from this conversation that we're talking about this morning, we're we're looking at in John chapter 5, God the Father would give the greatest sign and miracle through Jesus that anyone had ever seen. With no one around, except for the armed guard placed at the entrance to the tomb of a rich man, the God-man who had been beaten beyond recognition, humiliated, tortured with whips and thorns, nailed to a cross, had physically died and was confirmed already dead with a spear shoved through his heart and hurriedly wrapped up and laid in a tomb for portions of three days, that person inhaled his first breath as his body was physically resurrected and transformed into a glorified body. The ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus would then be the foundation for the everyday miracles that were happening in the lives of those who entrusted their eternal fates into his hands. 
From that point on, for thousands of years all the way up through today, people who were bound by the chains of sin and darkness and addiction and hopelessness and loneliness and debilitating depression and anxiety and fear experienced the miracle of Jesus finding them, leading them to put their faith in him and repenting of their sin and transforming their lives and families through the Holy Spirit. All of this, as Jesus first notes here, are God the Father's testimony to Jesus' deity and authority over our souls. All of it. One week before Jesus came back to life from death, there was another confirmation of his kingship and authority. Hundreds of years before that, the prophet Zechariah gave this prophecy. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, which is even more humble, the foal of a donkey. In fulfillment of this prophecy, which we observe today, Jesus does just this, riding on a donkey, which was humble, and even more humble, portions of the journey on a foal of a donkey. We celebrate this event as the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday on this day. The people gathered for Passover that year were exuberant at seeing Jesus riding into Jerusalem on these donkeys. They got that the prophecy in Zechariah was referring to a king, but they didn't get the full extent of that kingship. They misunderstood that Jesus' kingship, they thought that that only went so far as to kicking the Romans out of the area of Jerusalem and reestablishing the Jewish state. They did not understand that his kingship did not include that earthly kingdom yet, and they certainly didn't understand that Jesus' kingship far surpassed earthly matters. We have seen how Jesus has reiterated time and time again his kingship and authority as judge over the souls of everyone who has ever existed. On this Palm Sunday, how much do you recognize Jesus' kingship and authority over your soul and life? If you've never entrusted your eternity to Jesus as the king and the authority over your soul, do so today, you have no clue as to when your earthly life will end. And if you never answered God's call to do this before then, at that point it will be too late. Today, come to God, repent of your sins, and take Jesus' death and resurrection as the substitute payment for your sin. Use that as the foundation to ask God for forgiveness of your sin, which God's word promises he will. And recognize Jesus as the king over the rest of your life, seeking to please him out of love for all he's done for you. If you have surrendered your life to God in this way, or in other words, being born again, have you made Jesus the king over every area of your life? Or are there areas you refuse to surrender to his kingship? Don't deceive yourself. Jesus already holds the authority over every single area of your life. So all you're doing is causing destruction to yourself and inviting God's discipline into your life to bring you back on the right path. 
So may all of us here today or those watching or listening to this online later, on this Palm Sunday, recognize and make Jesus the king over our souls and make him the king over every area of our lives, surrendering, surrendering all of it to the Holy Spirit's transformation and bringing it all in line with God's standards in his word. In speaking about Jesus' kingship and authority, after all these signs and miracles God the Father gave to God the Son to perform in his earthly ministry, to give testimony to his deity and authority, in the last words Jesus gives to his disciples, he says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, because of that, and based on that foundation, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these first two witnesses to Jesus' deity and Jesus' authority over our souls and our lives. If we've never taken him as the king over our soul and every area of our life, I pray that we would do so today. That we would come before you in repentance, asking you for forgiveness of our sin and making you the king over our lives. For those of us who have already done that, who have already made that the foundation for our lives, if there's anything we're holding back from surrendering, to your kingship and authority. I pray that we would hand that over to you today, that we would surrender that to you today. May we all, in every area of our lives and in, in our innermost being, recognize everything of who you are as king and authority over every soul and over this entire earth. In Jesus' kingly name, amen.